SpongeBob, Shrek, The Daily Show, Sailor Moon, Boy Bands, Sports Enthusiasts, Sherlock Holmes, Barbie, Britney Spears, Hello Kitty, Jandek, Comic Books, Superheroes, Buffy. These are just some of the many, many topics I cover on my podcast, How to Stand, a show about both specific fandoms and just pop culture, internet culture, internet trends overall. Check out How to Stand in the same feed as my other podcast, 17 Karat K-Pop, wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm an independent creator, and so please spread the word about the show. There's an episode for every interest, and I really do appreciate the support spreading the word. You can also find out more info at my site, 17karatkpop.weebly.com. Thanks so much. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to How to Stand, and happy early Halloween. You are in for the twistiest of twisted tales today. Quick warning though before I really dive into today's topic, there is a lot of sensitive subject matter. This is not the kind of episode you should play. If your kids are around, probably I'll say 13 plus, but I will try to kind of skirt the super graphic details, but just by the nature of this topic, just know if you're super squeamish or if things are triggering to you, certain topics like suicide, assault, things like that, may not be the episode for you. Although I will try to keep the focus on the allegations in terms of how the media responded, in terms of how the public responded, more of a big picture perspective about the impact more than the allegations themselves. So I'm going to try to minimize the presence of that topic overtly in the episode. But just know that obviously that's what we're talking about or that's what I'll dance around. Also, I'm going to be saying SRA throughout the episode. That stands for Satanic Ritual Abuse because that is what the grand conspiracy theory was all about. So SRA means the accusations, there's this big cabal, this big secret society, brainwashing kids, taking them and abusing them. That's pretty much the theory. Or that there are groups who are dabbling in the occult, dark magic, that type of fear of satanic influence is spreading. That's pretty much what we're talking about. It is really truly a remarkable case study of mass hysteria. It fed on itself, it grew on itself, fake hype turned into real hype, fake worries turned into real worries, the more people believed it, the more believable it seemed, and sooner or later, over 12,000 entirely unsubstantiated claims of SRA incidents had taken over and filled people's lives with paranoia. It was also partly perpetuated because people in authority misused their titles. They used their credibility, everyone from Oprah to detectives to local newspaper reporters, really misused their audience's trust and really put full stock in all of the SRA claims and jumping to conclusions about what was in their minds indoctrinating or changing the children for the worse. It also had staying power not just because of the believability kept going up for these people as more people in high circles jumped into the mix, but it was also because it brought together a very odd coalition of people who normally wouldn't work together, but all these different groups were involved. Concerned parents, local reporters, local law enforcement, pretty much anyone in your life who might have someone in their life of a younger generation, which is almost everybody. The fear was basically twofold. There were those who believed, just hardcore believed, that there were satanic influences involving just overtly satanic rituals, big dark magic ceremonies, cemetery parties, basically, that kind of thing. 
And then there were others who believed the pop culture influences were more subliminally making young people prone to experiment in the occult. They thought there were hidden messages and even a niage effect, if you will. Love you if you get the reference. In toys, games, books, movies, everything. So there's this big censorship campaign to keep the children innocent and pure was the allegation of what needed to be done. At the turn of the 21st century, not only was stranger danger really just a normalized concept taught to your kids in school and parents instilled in kids, but also a Gallup poll showed 68% of Americans believed that the devil was a literal sentient being. The number actually was higher in Utah in the 70s. We will get to that. It's a unique place. This was bipartisan and across education status as well. 67% of Democrats believed this. 55% of postgraduates and 68% of college grads. Actual satanic allegations date back to even way before the Salem witch trials. Jewish people have always been threatened and accused of blood libel in the 16th and 17th centuries. The longevity of these claims to the conspiracy theorists and anti-Semites is all the more proof they should be believed, because they've withstood the test of time for a reason, they say. Another reason I won't go into specifics in this episode is because I don't want to perpetuate their gross, horrendous theories. A lot of storylines are coming together throughout the decades of the satanic panic. So, I'm going to combine a bunch of different stories into one cohesive timeline. A lot of it will make you think, where are you going with this? But please just trust me, strap in, get ready for a weird ride. This all is related, and you'll see. A lot of it you have to just follow the story, not knowing where I'm leading you. You just gotta trust me here. So, we're gonna start our timeline in January 1917. A woman named Vivian Matthews gives birth. And we don't know if this story is true. She was kind of a pathological liar. But this is the year supposedly when she just flat out, while pregnant, gets off a train in a mining town, shows up and randomly asks the people in the town to help her deliver this baby. While she told a stranger on the train she had been on to just watch her kids for her. So a stranger is watching her kids, she steps off, gives birth in a mining camp, and meets on foot her kids and the stranger at the original destination. Fall 1929, the Great Depression starts. Summer 1934, the largest strike in U.S. history so far, is held in San Francisco. It turns very violent, the governor sends in the military, and someone trying to take pictures of what happened was shot by soldiers. This is the same year Beatrice Sparks, Vivian Matthews' daughter, now grown up, travels to San Francisco, relocating from Utah. She had a pretty stable home life in Logan, Utah. Family had decent money. Her dad was a painter. She played violin. She was into a lot of social clubs. Her life was really disrupted. When around age 15, her dad walked on on her family. And not only that, but left for another woman he had been having an affair with. To supplement her mom's meager income, Beatrice ended up joining her working at a restaurant and dropped out of school, both to help her mom have one less mouth to feed at home and to break her life's monotony. Beatrice left at seventeen and headed to California amid this sociocultural strife. While waitressing in Santa Monica, she meets Lavorne. Her and Lavorne bond over both being school dropouts to work. Lavorne actually started work at age eleven. Just six weeks after meeting, Lavorne and Beatrice married. They had their first child a year later, who died less than a week later. They then had two more kids, and they were kind of settling in. 
Then their house burned down and they had to relocate again. There was also trauma to cope with for Beatrice Sparks because she found out her siblings, after her mom's remarriage, had been sent to an orphanage and had been split up. One of them they did get to eventually adopt, though, Lavorne and Beatrice. And another ended back up with their dad. They had to really rebuild literally after their house burned down. And rebuild, they certainly did. They were making decent money with a dry cleaning business, Lavorne ran by a military base, meaning soldiers' uniforms were a constant source of clientele for dry cleaning. But then they really hit it big. Lavorne got into the oil business at a time where that made so, so much money. It was such a great moment for him to do that. They sold a series of houses before settling in Westwood Hills. Just for the status, really, they didn't really need the room anymore. The sister they had adopted, Roma, was graduated and moved out. And when they moved to Provo, Utah, they moved into a home nearly three times as big as the average American home at that time. Again, empty nesters, but they wanted that prestige. They were also really well known in the area and showed up in the paper often for being big GOP leaders in Utah. They were very big in social circles and knew how to name drop. Beatrice really, really wanted to be known for her writing. She didn't just want to write, she wanted fame for the writing. So she was pretty shameless in just taking any offer allowed. You could pay her a penny and she would probably take the job. So she took a lot of the writing jobs a lot of people pass up and used a host of pen names, B. Sparks, Busy B, Susan Lavorne. She wrote an advice column for Junie Prom, which you probably have never heard of because it lasted seven issues. She worked on a screenplay for The Maid in the Martian, but her name was removed by the time it aired. But she had been a partner for a while with the Hanna-Barbera brand. Yes, the brand behind the Flintstones, the Jetsons. But her name was not put on that stuff. So she was getting writing ops, but not the kind she wanted, which would involve real fame, name recognition. Then she got a job writing for a vinyl record series, which was very short-lived. The audio recording vinyl collection, basically, was part of a multi-level marketing scheme. We'll get to that. She kept them pitching, hey, can I still work with you? Here are some more ideas. But nothing was coming to fruition. Finally, she had a big break writing-wise, with a book we're going to talk about soon that gave her a few thousand dollars in an advance, not bad for that time at all, and just 10% of the proceeds would have to go to the person who signed the deal. And remember, she could afford to kind of just become a famous author on her own time because of her rich husband. April 1937 is when her six-day-old child, Jimmy, dies. 1938, she has her second child, Yvonne. And in 1940, she has Lavorne Jr. April 1943, the year the home burned to the ground and Lavorne Jr. had to go live with an aunt. This is also the year I'm not drawing connections between events yet. These are separate events. They just happen to fall in the same years on this timeline. Trust me, it makes sense later. This is also the year chemist Albert Hoffman accidentally creates LSD. I kid you not, he self-administered this new experiment when the clock read 420. He was really struck by how freaking effective such a tiny dosage was to make him feel like a new person. 1944, the sparks start making it rich in oil. The Permian Basin under central Texas is yielding 82,000 barrels a day. 82,000. This is also the decade where she can keep writing freelance because her husband makes plenty of money in oil. Ian Sparks works for the California Intermountain News. 1947, LSD is patented. Test bottles are sent to psychologists and doctors. 
These LSD takers, self-administering for science's sake, realize two main things. One is the extreme potential of this to alter people's states of mind, and in good ways, therapeutic ways possibly, if administered responsibly. In fact, patients treated in Britain lost their alcohol addiction at a higher success rate than any previous attempt at treatment. Then there was a second realization, which is that LSD would be largely a circumstantial experience. The environment is everything. Take it in a place where you're scared, a dark place, a sinister place, whatever. You might have a nightmare trip. But you might trip into a state of euphoria if you take it in the circumstances that would allow that to happen. They definitely learned some of that the hard way. 1950. Nixon starts running for Senate, smearing his opponent, Helen Douglas, calling her a hardcore communist. He's just really fully on the attack, showing his true colors. 1953. The CIA launches MKUltra. This was a study actually modeled after Nazi research. People were given LSD without knowing. This even launched Operation Midnight Climax, a whole brothel created basically as a smokescreen, no smoke pun intended, where scientists watched people at the brothel behind one-way mirrors. Conspiracy theorists were very grateful to Kathy O'Brien, who wrote about SRA being a product, she said, of programs like MKUltra, saying that this was systemic, it was not a one-off project, there are deeper forces here. 1954, Eldon Barrett is born to Marcella, who runs a daycare center, and Dr. Lloyd Barrett, who is actually ahead of his time when it comes to mental health awareness, giving lectures on it and stuff, especially for that time that was novel when we're talking about teen mental health, because any experiments, any studies so far in the world of mental health focused on adults. People viewed it as, oh, you know, they're teens. They just naturally get that emotional, not worth studying. 1956. In Fort Lee, New Jersey, a drive-in movie experiment is run. We're at that movie. This company tries to see if they can prove there can be hidden messages impacting human behavior in pop culture. They slipped a message saying, drink Coke and eat popcorn into one thirty-thousandth of a second. A one thirty-thousandth of a second flash across the screen during a movie. They claimed this worked to boost Coke sales by over 57% and popcorn sales by over 18%. They also claimed over the course of six weeks, they had affected the purchasing of over 45,000 people. This so-called subliminal projection company gave the press a field day. The problem about their fear-mongering headlines was that this study made up claims that could not be verified. Those percentages, they wouldn't say where they came from. Anyone who inquired about the data behind this and asked to see the raw evidence were turned away. The company just wouldn't let them see proof of how they got to those numbers. The CIA even at one point looked into this claim about subliminal messages, and they found, quote, exceedingly limited evidence of subliminal messages having a concrete impact on people's behavior. Some people actually tried to overtly recreate their own version of the study to prove it right or wrong, just to see. And they did not get those results at all. CBC tried to repeat this with a call now message on the screen, and saw zero change in the amount of calls they got. I would also like to note, if there's a night where popcorn sales are up at a movie, my first thought would not be that the subliminal message worked. That may just be what happens some nights, but that's just me. 1963, the LSD patent expires, so tons of people get away with making cheap knockoff versions, and so many people are trying it for the first time. 
1964 is the year that over 200, again, please remember I'm not doing causality yet, that's later in the episode, but in 1964, over 200,000 teens are considered to have gone missing, and it reaches nearly 500,000 the following year. This is also when Sparks moves to Provo, Utah, where she volunteers at a hospital. She would later use this hospital title to call herself a doctor and talk about her past medical experience. But really what she did there was good stuff, but it wasn't what she claimed it was. She did babysitting type stuff, maid type stuff. She did chores. She helped people out with hospitality type stuff, a bunch of stuff, but not the kind of actual doctors and nurses work that comes to mind. It was stuff any volunteer like her was allowed to do. 1966. The Church of Satan is a book published, a fear-mongering filled book, from the author who would later publish the Satanic Bible, which it turns out was actually a heavily plagiarized book, not just fear-mongering but plagiarized. 1967. Art Linkletter. Basically Tom Hanks before Tom Hanks. America's dad before America's dad. This super beloved, super famous guy who put his name and face on a lot of stuff. Most well known though for the show People Are Funny. That was also the brand that brought you the companion book Kids Say the Darndest Things. He had just those I'm just like your dad wholesome energy people loved. He actually helped make The Game of Life so iconic by endorsing it. Art Linkletter is to thank for The Game of Life becoming such a staple. Linkletter, though, like I said, put his face on a whole lot of stuff. And he made a deal with the Family Achievement Institute. This is basically the MLM who decides to sell vinyl records. Sort of. They want you to work for them, selling the records, and you pay an initial amount for joining. And you don't get a reimbursement or anything until you meet a certain quota of sales for them. The ads were super corny too. They would just say things like, quote, make up to 16320 a month, prestige, fulfillment, security, act today, lots of exclamation points. This started actually being aggressively promoted specifically in Utah, which has been nicknamed the fraud capital of America. It's where actually they outdo the average amount of good stuff in America, the average for volunteer work and stuff. But it's also the part of the country with more white-collar crime, as well as more frauds, more exploiting of charitable instincts. October 1967, a white woman, Linda Fitzpatrick, is found dead, stripped and beaten to death in an alley after a drug deal gone wrong. She was a wealthy private school student who lived in a 30-room house who had a great reputation, a lot of athletic accolades. On the outside, her life was great, but she struggled with drugs taking over her life and then was dead ultimately because of that. She was found with James Hutchinson, a non-white man who failed to get the same media treatment afterwards. The person police suspected at first, the black security officer who told them about this. They actually pinned a separate incident on him and then said they would give him immunity in that case if he copped up to doing this case. The papers portrayed other suspects with the N-word overtly, as well as accusing one of them of some dark magic associated with, quote, the African tribal faith Yoruba, unquote. The other they portrayed as a jobless hobo, basically. And all the framing was about how Linda had been given LSD or some kind of drug, but given a drug, being given a drug that killed her. She wasn't seeking it out in a deal. This was forced onto her by a perpetrator, someone from those parts. October 1968, possessing any amount of LSD is made a federal crime. 
by 1969, at least one paper now has on record that Beatrice Sparks is, apparently, a psychologist at the Provo Mental Hospital. August 1969, the Charles Manson murders, another example of people kind of left in shock and awe about all of the previously kind of well-off suburban white women who he had drawn into this cult, and people wondering what was happening to the these innocent young people. October 4th, 1969, Art's daughter Diane kills herself. She struggled a lot living in her dad's shadow. She also had a very short marriage and one that her parents didn't approve of. Life was hard for her. But the second this grieving dad found out maybe she had taken LSD, he latched onto that. It was a narrative he could digest. He couldn't digest the complex narratives about a host of reasons people do that. He needed a simple answer, and so in his mind he latched on to the thought that something had been done to her for that to happen. She actually tested clean for a bunch of drugs, and they hadn't even bothered testing for LSD, so it could never be proven that she ever was on it at all. But that was the story that he could believe. Later that same month, Art Linkletter is invited to the White House they need a good PR man who can gain America's trust and promote Nixon's super war on drugs aggressive agenda. June 1970. Eldon Barrett can't take it anymore. He really grew up in a place where he felt stifled, a small Mormon community where he didn't fit in politically, socially, in any way. He just wants to become his own person, not have this life seemingly forced upon him in this kind of monoculture area. He buys a one-way ticket and leaves this town of Pleasant Grove. He quickly ends up in a hostel for runaway teens. Running away from home is a crime in 1970. He eventually just calls home and gets picked up, but is still just miserable. July 1970. Beatrice Sparks works at the BYU Mormon summer camp. This is where a story unfolds between two young women, Toby and Brenda. Long story short, Toby tries to get Brenda a lot of psychological help because she really feels like she's having a really hard time growing up and feels very unwanted, in her words, by God. She doesn't feel like she belongs in the world, and Toby's very worried about her constantly. August 1970, Eldon's parents are out of town, so he has people over. He does weed and gets caught by the cops. Because his parents are out of town, he has to stay in a lockup overnight. He gets probation and house arrest, and in that moment, makes a promise to himself to get clean. A week or so later, Teresa Blaine starts high school, the next year of high school. She's a very attractive, well-liked girl, but she's very awkward socially. People just assume she's the kind of girl who has a ton of friends, but not really, actually. And she's kind of lonely. So, it's quite a storybook love story, a tumultuous but storybook nonetheless, and she ends up having a sweet interaction with a love-struck, awkward Alden Barrett. And pretty soon, Teresa and Alden are very smitten, both outsiders drawn together. They end up going to the back-to-school dance together, end up leaving early to go talk, and the talk gets pretty dark pretty fast. They get into some deep stuff. September 1970, Alden starts keeping a diary. Also that month, the Manson trial gets started. This is also at the time of some other big tumultuous headlines. There's the Kent State shooting, the Pentagon Papers, there was the Marina del Rey incident where this hippie gave, supposedly, this hippie had given acid secretly to partygoers who ended up dead. The amount of dead reported varied extremely widely from paper to paper, so it's unclear what happened. 
No one ever actually proved anyone took LSD that night, and prosecutors agreed to a plea bargain. This is also the month before Nixon signs the Controlled Substances Act, which puts LSD and weed in the Schedule One category of drugs, the most high-alert dangerous one, supposedly. October 7th, 1970, a judge grants Alden the end of his house arrest, so he just has to get through probation without violations and will be free and easy March 15th. At the point his house arrest ends, he's eight weeks sober, and he becomes the debate team president that fall. Finding a lot of solace in debate, it's a great thing for him just therapeutically, socially, and he loves the world of facts, seeing it as totally juxtaposed with the world of just belief and religion he's grown up in. November 1970, the sweater swing dance, when Alden and Teresa, since they can't actually get married yet and their parents don't approve, they have a fake marriage ceremony at a cemetery. December 1970, Alden's friend commits suicide and he has to attend her funeral. Late 1970, Catherine Fitzgerald receives the bag of papers that is supposedly a book, what looks like a bunch of crumpled up paper. It's a very disheveled journal, basically. An anonymous journal retrieved about a girl's life with drug addiction up until she died from it. 1971 starts off with two of Alden's friends separately getting engaged, leaving him super envious. And again, very frustrated with life as it is for him. Feeling like he can't control anything in it, except his relationship with Teresa, which is super intense. He writes his first diary entry that January. February 2nd, 1971, Beatrice's lawyer writes a letter of agreement for the terms of a publishing deal. This was a struggle to hash out, and basically the lawyer went behind her back because Sparks was insistent that she had to have her name front and center on this book. She was not selling a book without getting all the credit she wanted. But the lawyer was basically not giving an inch, not budging, insisting no one's going to read this book with your name on it because she said the book was a diary she had retrieved from a previous patient of hers as a therapist. The girl named Alice, well I'll call her Alice because the book is Go Ask Alice, but actually in the book she's never called Alice, that just became the moniker. But anyway, this girl supposedly left her diary with her about her life with drug addiction and other harrowing incidents as a teen runaway. Sparks now wants to publish this kind of as a PSA, an awareness thing, and they're insisting it'll be too preachy, no one will read it if they know an adult gave it to them. It'll be like handing them a dare textbook. No kid wants to read that. So for the sake of the story, you better stay anonymous. Keep that mystery. And her lawyer basically says, yeah, we'll do that, without Beatrice knowing, so she's outraged, but that is what it is. The story of Goask Alice is about a 15-year-old middle-class girl She's swept up in a world of sex and drugs. She dies at 17 despite vowing to get clean. She starts hanging out with the wrong crowd. She hitchhikes across the West Coast. And reviewers start thinking this is the kind of story parents should read too, to understand the kids these days and the dangers out there. Mid-February 1971, Alden's dog, Duchess, dies, one of his only constant sources of joy. March 13th, Alden commits suicide for a host of reasons. Again, I'm not just directly linking it to the event before it, but his dog's passing certainly felt like the straw that broke the camel's back. May 1971, over 8,000 anti-war protesters protest violently, and several thousand get arrested. The jails get so full that a football field has to be used to corral the rest of the detainees. June 1971. Nixon is super impatient. He really wants this war on drugs to get super more intense right now. 
He asked Congress both for more jailing power as president and $84 million in additional funding for his big drug crackdown. Days after this, a reporter at Miami News gets an advanced review copy of Goaskalis. She was so emotionally impacted by this tragic story. She just felt in her gut this was a true story. It was just so painful to read, so raw. It was the kind of writing you don't write for anyone to read. You don't write for any eyes to see. It's as private and as diary-like as it comes. And she thinks people have to read this book. Meanwhile, at this time, where she's located, the crime rate has risen and expulsions have increased 60%. The kids are not all right. Between the fall of 1971 and the spring of 72, teen drug use spikes by some estimates over one-third of high schoolers having used an illegal drug before. 71 is also the year The Exorcist is published, a book that helped visualize this concept, bring an image to mind of this concept of demonic possession. It's also what stoked this parental fear that Ouija boards were not just toys but satanic and you better not get a Ouija board. January 1972, Goas Gallus is such a smash hit, but of course it draws ire from parents for its graphic nature. And it is added to the American Library Association's Best New Books for Young Readers list. Viewed as a great way to get pick your readers interested, because it is a very fast read. It's diary entry style, fragmented. 1972. Nixon signs into law the Drug Abuse Office and Treatment Act. Later in private, he went off on his aides about this. He was so mad about including the word treatment. He was like, I don't care about these people at all. Why do we have the treatment component? He really just wanted to lock every drug user up, basically. November 1972, Illinois Representative Weber Borchers brings a group of like-minded, angry people with him in the attended board meeting to insist that Goaskalis be removed from library shelves. Weber then went on to a city council meeting, continuing his crusade against Goaskalis by reading aloud at the meeting the filthiest, most uncomfortable parts of the book he could find. Also in 72, two books are published that are really key here. There's a quote-unquote memoir called Satan Seller, as well as the book Satanic Rituals, which is by a Christian evangelist that describes a childhood spent in the grips of a satanic group, apparently. This really gets the public attention because lots of fear has been building about potential influences on kids that could explain the runaways, the drug use, etc., January 1973, a TV adaptation of Goaskalis airs, and nearly one-third of U.S. households tune in. 1973, this is the year The Exorcist premieres. This is also when, supposedly, the events of Michelle Remembers happen. The book Michelle Remembers by Michelle Smith, we'll talk about that later. But just know her so-called memoir involves everything from being visited by Satan himself to getting stuck in a cage with live snakes. 73 is also the year Provo Canyon School opens. It actually was previously opened elsewhere before it got kicked out of town. There are very limited options for teen mental health treatment, so instead they go to academies, military schools of sorts, like Provo Canyon. Scott, Eldon's brother, his life really took a downturn after Eldon's death. He started using drugs, playing hooky, running away, and he just really struggled to find himself. And he was sent to Provo Canyon School right before turning 15. 
It will later come out that this school has a history of forced isolation, physical and chemical restraint use, removal of contacts with the outside world, discouraging parents from visiting, trips outside of the building, requiring signing an agreement to only say positive things about the school while out, plus a polygraph awaits you when you come back, intercepted mail, having to rewrite any mail that involves letters that would involve a cry for help or even a slight negative comment about the school, just heinous environment. 1974. Elizabeth Loftus, a psychologist, starts working for the Department of Transportation, and she would actually develop an instrumental career when it comes to memory, understanding how human memory works. Her experiments include having eyewitness accounts and trying to see if they change based on the wording of the question, and they sure do. She basically helped point out the many flaws in supposed eyewitness accounts in trying to remember what exactly you saw and the variables that affect that. She also did studies on what exactly you remember. She was able to convince some people after a lot of practice and successfully get certain memories implanted into them. She helped them visualize the scenario of a guy in a denim jacket helping you as a little kid. When you were a little kid, someone at the mall saw you lost your parents, you lost the way, and they got you back to your parents. This guy in a nice jean jacket hugged you and told you it would be okay and got you back to your parents. She basically taught some of her patients that to the point where they did believe that happened to them on a big scale, like a lot of people believe this story. It's in their psyche now. Similar stories too, and they did not have to follow logic. People didn't think twice about him. For example, her prompting people to believe a memory of a time they met Bugs Bunny at Disney World. If you think about it for even a second, you might think, wait, Bugs Bunny is for Warner Brothers, not Disney. He would not be IP of any kind of Disney. But they don't think about that in the moment. She played a key role in a psychology era, I guess, of what's called the memory wars. She's actually consulted on major high-profile criminal cases, from Ted Bundy to Martha Stewart. 1976. Acclaimed writer Lori Hall Sanderson, as a teenager, finds a copy of Go Ask Alice and feels like her life really changed by this book, really affected her. The summer of 97, the son of Sam panic hits New York City. 98, the Jonestown Massacre. This is also when cops arrest Richard Chase, a serial killer who was caught with a bucket of cow blood. The rumors write themselves. This is also the year Go Ask Alice nears 3 million copies sold. Sparks then goes on a big promo blitz for her next book, Voices. This one, she says, is a compilation. She claims she interviewed over 1,000 runaways and decided to put four of those teens' case studies, case files basically, psychological session notes, into a book. Voices actually, though, gets panned by critics because Sparks, frankly, is not a great writer. And so she could get away with that as Alice with a diary book because, of course, that's going to be scattered and not super eloquent put together. It literally wasn't put together at first. She was sending it like a pile of receipts or something to the original reviewers before it came out when she was still just kind of shopping the book around. But now it's pretty obvious that the writing is clunky. It's kind of a slog to read. And so many times... It's awkward because the patients repeat the question, repeat some exposition for the benefit of the reader. 1979, Lynn Bryson is a guy who is trying to make it in this world in music, and his radio label goes under. January 1979, Marcella finds out what became of a meeting she had. 
Upon learning about and reading an interview with Beatrice Sparks, she realizes she can do this for me. She did it for that one girl, made sure her voice was heard. Maybe she can do that for Alden. She can publish his diary and help make sure he's never forgotten. And maybe I can help other grieving parents know they're not alone in this. So she sees, especially being a woman of faith, this is a very divine intervention in her life. Learn about this woman who happens to live less than 10 miles away from her. All feels very fateful. So she's feeling really like this is meant to be. Her and Beatrice meet up. Beatrice is more than happy to make this happen. And then, January 79, Marcella is just out and about when she finds out a book is being sold called Jay's Journal, The Haunting Diary of a 16-Year-Old in the World of Witchcraft. What Beatrice had done without telling her was not just publish Eldon's diary, but take some excerpts from it and merge them with 190 original entries and added an occult spin on everything. So this was not a story of a PSA about drug use or teen mental health or anything like that. It was not a story of a boy who deserved a story to be heard. It was a story of a crazed, satanic man. The true story of his late-night rituals, the moonlit marriage ceremony that really did happen, is now really just sexed up and dramatized. All sorts of scenes with everything from a big satanic ritual with different elements to cow mutilation... She also incorporated some real-life horror stories in there, supposedly to make it more believable, but she messed up the dates of these real events just to make them fit the chronology of the diary. Wouldn't have taken too long to fact-check that. She also, in this book, took some entries and changed the context. So when Jay would make an ambiguous comment about someone he didn't like, she would fill in the blank and say he was clearly talking about so-and-so. So he painted Marcella herself and her husband as downright neglectful parents, not ones who just felt lost and in the dark about their true, the true mental state of their son. Not grieving parents, but totally complicit and dismissive ones. In this version of the story, Jay gets dumped after he tries to quit the world of witchcraft. He's visited by a demon, Raoul, and takes it as a big warning sign to turn his life around. He schedules a meeting with his bishop to do just that, but can't handle it and commit suicide before the meeting day arrives. The book ends with a note basically saying, from his parents, he fooled all of us, we had no idea what was going on in his head. Another thing the story did that left Marcella irate, the ways she kept details private were so not done well. Very sloppy way to do things for the sake of anonymity. The sweater swing dance was changed in the book to the sweater fling dance. The local restaurant, the Purple Turtle, was renamed the Blue Moo. Teresa is now in the book, Tina. This is probably the worst part. She did use a real radio station name and the real call numbers in the book. This was a place Alden had just briefly interned, but this reference alone could have decoded the entire book and proven it was all about Pleasant Hill, which in this story is Apple Hill. She also suddenly linked different deaths to witchcraft that obviously had nothing to do with them. And there was another moment that was just ignored, just taken to be true. Jay's journal includes a quote from a piece about voodoo, published 11 months after he died. More chaos in the world, March 1979. Two million people are hit with radiation when a Pennsylvania nuclear reactor melts down. Less than a week later, anthrax spores hit a nearby town that had escaped a lab. 
This is also the time. Job offerings are scarce. The Watergate saga, the Vietnam War, those have both ended, but not really. No satisfying closure for anyone. Inflation is nearly in the double digits, and references to Satan in a host of contexts become more normal. This apocalyptic philosophizing. Iran's leader calls America the great Satan. Popular evangelical Christian Jerry Falwell claims this is, quote, the last generation before Jesus comes. He also calls the increase in working moms, quote, an assault by Satan on the family. People are starting to blame Satan on a lot of their fears. Satan becomes the go-to bogeyman. September 1979, Aileen Nielsen, an associate professor at the Arizona State Department of Library Science, finds out about Sparks, her book Voices, and wants to interview her. So she goes to Sparks' house, which I have to be petty for a second, is just so ugly. All the red, red everywhere with white accents. Like a freaking satanic dungeon, really. And then, of course, bookshelves stacked with Sparks' own books. Anyway, super tacky and ugly, and that's where they are for the interview. Not the point, though. So she asks her about basic journalist questions, but one Sparks has gotten away without answering until now. She asks about keeping anonymity, and in this interview, Sparks claims, oh yeah, it was my idea. I wanted to make sure I was anonymous for the kids' sake, to make sure this was something they wouldn't turn away from. That was my idea. The piece came out called The House That Alice Built. The author was honest, writing in there stuff like, when I asked for this or that, she did not provide that proof. She did not provide any proof of training, credentials. She didn't answer this question or that. She dodged this. She danced around that. She was pretty honest. Then again, she actually wasn't as hard-nosed of a reporter in this instant as you would think. She didn't ask to see a diploma or some other basic questions. Naturally, this piece really ticks off Sparks, who writes an angry letter saying, I graduated with a psych major from UCLA. How dare you claim otherwise? She also took issue with the title of the article, The House That Alice Built, insisting, quote, most of the money received from Go Ask Alice has gone into rehabilitation and other forms of helping young people, unquote. She also just was so offended and really picked apart the whole piece, really mad that it had done its due journalistic diligence. In 1979, Spark is undeterred after a film deal for Jay's journal falls through. She eventually sells it to a different screenwriter and gets 20k from the sale. Keep in mind, this is 70s era 20k. Also that year, a new organization forms that becomes popular nationwide for concerned parents about satanic forces called Moral Majority. By the 80s, satanic panic is in full swing. Michelle Remembers is scaring the heck out of readers. Books like Jay's Journal are scaring parents. People think there are satanic forces everywhere. Daycare, schools, pop culture. No one is safe. They're even coming for the suburban people, the upper class people. No corner of the world is safe. Well, actually, this was mainly a panic among the English-speaking world, but... Plus, Dungeons and Dragons was becoming a popular school activity, after-school activity, that really made parents fear the kids were just learning witchcraft. It was actually kind of common speak-out events were happening at this point, where victims who realized they had suppressed memories of their own SRA incidents could open up about their experiences. By this year, Provo Canyon schools' abuses are public, and the ACLU files a lawsuit. Provo Canyon comes out on top, stays in business, and even expands to be co-ed. They still feel like the world in the 80s is going to heck and the teens need help. The suicide rate is up nearly 50%. Plus, in 
Plus, it feels like there's an explosion in abuse against kids. But the data had changed because of practical reasons. Mandated reporter laws were not a thing before the 80s. And now that they were, of course it felt like a more common phenomenon that kids were being hurt. Because they hadn't had to report that before, and now they were mandated to. While the first big wave of SRA claims takes hold in Kern County, California, which eventually leads to over $9.5 million in settlement money, Wasatch Middle School is starting its Dungeons & Dragons after-school program. A lot of outsider kids, awkward kids, kids like Alden, suddenly feel a part of a special community of quirky people. It's an underdogs group who learn teamwork and usually are pretty antisocial. So Dungeons and Dragons is a fantasy escape, a strategy thing, and it helps their social skills and sense of community. But people keep thinking anything to do with witchcraft is to be taken super seriously, and even if it poses as pop culture, it's a threat to your kid's mental state. That's the threat. In March, 300 parents and just angry people show up at a board meeting, demanding Dungeons & Dragons be done away with at the school. The compromise reached is fine. We'll keep it available, but we'll get rid of the manuals. With all the pictures and the instructions. But actually, that's kind of the whole game. If you don't have the manual, you cannot play Dungeons & Dragons. That's the foundation of it. By the way, this group of so-called grassroots organizers who protested, same group behind campaigns like the one who tried to end a free breakfast program for poor students, the group who tried to end Title IX protections, the ERA, Planned Parenthood, etc. The parents kept up the fight and were just relentless. So eventually the school superintendent was like, enough of this, and just had to completely remove Dungeons and Dragons. August 1980. James Egbert kills himself. He struggled to fit in because of his sexuality, yet because he was into Dungeons and Dragons, people love that angle, pin the blame on that. And that's just one example. If your kid was into Dungeons and Dragons, played a Ouija board once, listened to heavy metal music, there were a host of things that if your teen did them and then killed themselves, you can pinpoint that specific thing, and that was determined to be the sole cause of it. Now let's talk about this Michelle Remembers nonsense. It was a so-called true story of a woman whose traumatic memories had supposedly resurfaced under hypnotherapy. She told the harrowing stories of a childhood she realized was actually full of SRA. This book was really credited with popularizing the term SRA in the first place. It was also a huge moment because it triggered a wave of people in therapy revealing suddenly they thought they remembered similar experiences in their childhoods. The book was co-written by a very, very interesting couple, Lawrence and Michelle. Michelle was the patient, Lawrence was her psychiatrist, a credentialed one, although the hypnotherapy specifically he tried on her is still kind of debated. They really just became celebrities for this book in their bravery in exposing this. The couple earned over $340,000 and, of course, a massive nationwide promo blitz. This book was supposedly co-written by the couple, and yes, I do keep saying the couple, because indeed, pretty soon, they were dating, and the psychiatrist and the patient became spouses. 
January 1981. Sparks is in London for press and opens up to a reporter about the fear these children who come forward about the occult face for coming forward in the bravery it takes. And they worry about telling her too much because they worry that she'll know too much. May 1981. A 17-year-old, Michael Dempsey, takes his own life and his dad blames the occult. The media repeats the quote of the occult did this and runs with it. November 1981. Media warns about a sinister clown seen haunting the town, possibly giving your kids drugs or something. Turns out it was just the fire department's mascot, a clown named Cinder Britches. 1981 is also a big breaking point for Eldon's parents, who divorce. Doyle wanted to keep the story kind of private. Marcella insisted the book be released for the world, but now they're in this mess because of the story, and it just drove a, an irreconcilable rift in their relationship. April 1982. There is a meeting in Sacramento for the California Assembly Consumer Protection and Toxics Committee. The subject? Led Zeppelin, Stairway to Heaven. They are accused of backwashing. First of all, backwashing is a real thing when you put a message backwards in music. But you put it in, not like a literal message, but just like instrumentally. But sonically, instrumentally, you try playing something backwards. The Beatles love this technique. And of course, the Beatles get wrapped up in SRA allegations and other stuff. But backwashing is a real thing when you just want to be musically experimental. What became part of the satanic panic was thought that backwashing was common in certain types of music, like metal and rock, and that it was literal messages where if you played a song backwards, you heard a, an even at niage moment, as I said before. Again, love you if you get the reference. Now these guys, this neuroscientist, allegedly, and an assemblyman he was with, were arguing that if you play Stairway to Heaven backwards, you hear him say, quote, I sing because I live with Satan. Here's to my sweet Satan. Some musicians actually did intentionally then put ton-in-cheek messages in their music backwards. So it was a fake trend, or a misinterpreted real trend was a fake trend, and then it became a real trend, used as an ironic joke by musicians back at the public. June 1982. Patricia Pulling's teen son kills himself, and she basically makes it her life's work after blaming Dungeons & Dragons to get rid of the game. She also sues the high school and the game's publishers, and she does not entertain notions of her son's struggles to fit in or other reasons why he was depressed. This must have been it. It was occult forces who killed him. She forms B-A-D-D, bad, bothered about Dungeons and Dragons. She got licensed as a private investigator and even started consulting for law enforcement. She spread word and got a lot of media attention. She told one reporter, 8% of people in Virginia were Satanists. And they asked how you got that number, and she said, well, 4% of the adults there are, and 4% of the teens there are, so that's 8% of them. Which, that's not how the math works. The overall percent would still be 4 if you're saying that. You're not, that's not how that works. But anyway, this organization also went global and really got reach in Australia thanks to conservative groups like the Australian Federation for Decency and a reverend, Fred Nile. People who are faith-based were kind of sometimes prone to believe this stuff because they may already believe in, in Satan as a real being. They also might just always be seeking for an answer, a fate, a reason for something to happen. And Patricia found her reason to be, I must be on this earth to get rid of this game. That is where I will stop today. 
The next part of the series, we'll pick up right where we left off.